Can I ask you to turn back to, to Joshua chapter uh, 3, please, 3 and 4? As we're doing that, let's also turn to God in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, we bow to you this morning. We plead with you as a church. Lord, we know that we come with too little expectation often. You are capable of doing mighty works. And in this day and age, we know, oh God, you work as you have always worked through your words. And so we look to you and we ask, Lord, that you might do that this morning. Lord, startle us with your power. Amaze us as you point us to your Son. Lord God, we ask that you would give us minds to understand and give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that receive your word for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, if we were to... If we bear the old covenant in uh, mind, if we survey, I suppose, not the wondrous cross, but if we survey uh, the Old Testament scriptures, surely what is clear to us is that our God is a God who loves to provide pictures and foreshadows of his uh, great work of salvation. If we look at the Old Testament, we survey the Old Testament, we see God likes to provide pictures of what he was uh, going uh, to do. I'm sure everyone understands that and sees what I mean, whether it be, where will we go? Naaman the Syrian, pointing us to the cleansing that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it be Ezekiel's valley of dry bones pointing us forward to the cleansing, sorry, the new life rather, that the gospel provides. As somebody else has said before me, in the Old Testament, God seems to have truly delighted in veiled anticipations of foreshadows, pictures of his coming gospel work. Well, this morning, in the book of Joshua, is it not the case that we come to one such example? Because, yes, over the last few weeks, we've seen that there is something of a future dimension, a not-yet dimension uh, to the promised land. Isn't that right? It's only in death, truly, that you and I as Christians will enter into God's Sabbath rest fully. Yes, there is a, a future dimension, but what else do you know, Christian friend? You know that even right now this morning in Christ Jesus, you dwell in Canaan. Isn't that right? That in Christ Jesus, what has happened to you and to me, but we have left the wilderness behind in dying and rising with Christ Jesus. We have traversed the Jordan and this morning, yes, our feet might be in the the cold floor of St. Peter's or the cold balcony up there, but spiritually speaking, where are we? Our feet just now are in a new land, 
in Christ Jesus, our, our feet, they inhabit the promised land and the promised land of God's beautiful, wonderful salvation. Well, today as we seek to cover these two chapters of God's Word, there will be obvious lessons from God here, aren't they? We can see them. But they are, yes, lessons about the people of Israel. But I think even more so for us this morning, there are lessons about what God has done for you, what God has done for me, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So Joshua 3 and 4. Now, uh, very often, points in a sermon, they can be a bit like that TV show, uh, Grand Designs. I'll say that again because it does sound strange. But uh, the points in a sermon can be a little bit um, like that TV show, Grand Designs. You will maybe know what I mean if you've seen that uh, show. What happens in, in, in Grand Designs? So a couple will go to build a new house. And then the presenter, what's his name? Kevin McLeod. That's him, isn't it? What he'll do is he'll sort of talk us through, narrate through uh, the different stages of the build. But what's happening in Grand Designs? Everything is working towards the big reveal at the end, isn't it? You know it if you've seen that. There'll be the sweeping shot of the house in its completed glory, right? With some funky music alongside the sweeping. The big reveal. Well, you can see it. Isn't that kind of what some preachers like to do, maybe with a point in a sermon? You know, you can see it. They'll, they'll build it in stages, the point of the sermon. But everything's kind of working towards the kind of big reveal at the end. Well, not today. Not, not today. No, instead, what, what I want to do, certainly in the, the first point here, in a sense, is to reveal the conclusion, to start at the end if you, you, you like, to reveal the house right off. So please, listen for the first heading, the first point this morning. What do we see in Joshua 3 and 4? We see this, first of all. We see the entrance to the promised land is by the power of the Almighty God alone. Entrance to the promised land is by the power of the Almighty God. There's, there's the house. <laughs> there's the sweeping shot of, of the house. So how is that, in Joshua 3 and 4, how is that put together? How is that built? Have you got Scripture there in front of you? Now, what we could do, I suppose, is we could just think about the foundations of that house. Because you see that idea? that this is all by God's power, that is, that is telegraphed to you in this text. So both at the beginning of the text, chapter 3, verse 5, and at the end of the text, chapter 4, verse 23, do you know what we're told? We're not just told that the people of God crossed over. We are told, beginning and end, this was an act of the power and the might of Yahweh, the power and the might of God. So we could linger there. But if you've been involved in any sort of building project you know that the foundations, <laughs> foundations are not always that inspiring and exciting. So how were the walls put up? Well, here, let me speak, please, to the younger people. We've still, even though some have gone out of Sunday school, we've still got some younger people in the room. Let me just speak to you guys just for a moment. Really, what I just want to identify is whether, are you, whether you know what is meant by the Ark of the Covenant. You know, we've heard of that at least 
some of the younger people, the Ark of the... I think we know what it is, do we? So we know the Ark of the Covenant is a, a small box, golden box, four by two by two, quite, quite a small box, housed the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? It was carried by priests, wasn't it? Now, we probably know, do we, that the Ark was something that symbolized the presence of God. You know that? The Ark, wait for this. The Ark actually symbolized the footstool of God. So when we encounter the Ark of God, what we're supposed to do is almost kind of picture the throne of of God kind of ascending up, rising up from this ark. Well, for the rest of us, hopefully everybody in the room and you watching online at home, you all noticed, didn't you, how central the ark is to these chapters of scripture? I didn't count this but I take it as, as truth that the ark is mentioned 17 times in this section of Scripture. Everything is pointing us to, to this ark. Now, what I find quite interesting about this is what the people are commanded to do in relation to the ark. Can I ask you to look at this with me? Have a look halfway through verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Let's look at that halfway through. Do you see what the people are uh, commanded to do with with the ark? I guess it depends on your translation, but the the idea is the same. Keep your distance. Steve, what is it? 2,000 cubits or 1,000 yards, depending on your translation. Stay stay, stay back. Why is that, friend? Why stay back? Not actually for holiness in this instance. Do you understand here? It is for observation. Do, Do you see the idea? Here the people of Israel are confirmed simply as bystanders. Do do you see? They are passive. They're simply watching on and watching on as what happens as the ark. No. Watching on as the throne of the divine warrior king strides out to the Jordan. And what happens? God acts. God holds back the water. And God brings his people across. Do you see the power of the Almighty? The power of God. So we see the founds, the walls. Suppose we better see how the roof goes on this house. Um, You may have seen this yourself, friends, but there is a meme, a viral picture going around the internet, going around uh, social media at the moment. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this. It's a meme that shows the supposed difference between how a man and a woman tell a story. The difference with, have you seen this? This could get me into trouble, but I am not agreeing with this meme in any way, shape, or form. I am just stating that it exists. So how does a man tell the story? Well, this is depicted in one solitary line from point A to point B. How does a man tell the story in a pretty mundane fashion? How is a woman depicted as telling a story? Well, there's a squiggly line. It's a line that shows the tangents and details and conversations. I suppose the idea is that a woman is more creative. More creative than us boring men and the way that we, in a mundane fashion, tell And again, I am not saying that I agree with this. I'm just reporting the meme. 
Okay, well, actually, we see something like that here in your hands in this story, because at one point in chapter 3, what the author does is he employs what I think is truly an ingenious device, and I want to point it out to you. So what he does, chapter 3, is he begins to build tension, right, in various ways. He's heightening the suspense about this river crossing, and the suspense is growing, and the tension is growing, and just at the point where the tension is just unbearable for the reader, you know, just at the point where the the suspense is just too much to bear and we're just about to fall off our seats, just at that point, what the author does is he throws in a couple of geographical details. Now, think about it, that might sound a bit strange, but you see what he's doing. By doing that, by using this device, he's ensuring that these little details do not pass us by. So we ought to notice what they are. So look at verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. Do you notice about halfway through, there's mention of this town, this area of Adam? Does everybody see that, Adam? What you need to know about that is that Adam was the most, now listen carefully, it was the most likely place to cross the Jordan. So there was a ford, a famous crossing in a dam. And everybody knew that downstream from there, whoa, that was when things got really, really treacherous. But you look at the Bible in verse 16, is that actually where they cross? It's not. Like a dam is where God piles up the water. They do cross downstream. We're scratching our heads at that, aren't we? That seems unusual. And then the second detail is verse 15. Again, can I ask you to look at that? Look at verse 15. This is everything, people. This is critical. Look, what's the detail here? The the Jordan was in flood. The ESV, some of you are using the ESV. ESV really gives the idea. The Jordan was, was just overflowing at this point, flooding at this point. See, what we learn, listen carefully, what we learn in chapter 4, is that this event took place on the, what does it say, the 10th day of Nisan, this crossing, this camping. What does that mean to us? You might scratch your heads at that. That means this is springtime. This is wet season. Surely we understand what's going on here. This is a time where the Jordan River was not as it is depicted in so many kids' Bibles. You know, the Jordan River, oh, it's just this nice meandering stream. Not a bit of it, people. This is a time of year where the Jordan River was a raging torrent. You understand that? You see it, don't you? I mean, this is a, a river that is deep and it's wide and it's, it's overflowing. It is this ferocious, fast-paced beast. Do you see it? Do you see it? Not only in the location, downstream from Adam, but also in the very season, everything, all the details pointing to what? Only God could do this. This is a display of the almighty power of God. But then, last here, maybe we need to think about the interior of the house. Because I think if you've been at a church for any length of time, or if you have read scripture and books on scripture, you know fine well that critics love to attack portions of scripture like this. And we know that. 
You know, a Bible critic would, would love to, to try and rationalize this sort of miracle away, wouldn't they? I don't know how many times <laughs> that I have read that, you know, a Bible critic say, oh, but the River Jordan was blocked up at a couple of other points in human history. Yes, as far as I'm aware, never in the wet season. And do you not just love what you are told in chapter 3, verse 15? Have a look. You try and rationalize this away. Try and dismiss the, the timing away. Look at it. As soon as. Look at the detail. As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan. As soon as their sandals... <laughs> The priest sandals are carrying the journey as soon as they got a little bit wet. What happens at that very second? God holds back the water. Those water, as soon as they put their feet in, things stop. You see it? Do you? Everything in this portion of Scripture is screaming to you the same message from the, the movements of God, from the locations, from the season, and now from the exact timing, the seconds of this. You see the message. God was at work. This was the Lord. The Lord bringing his people across by his power. The Lord bringing his people home. Now, as we consider the parallels for ourselves as Christians in St. Peter's, there's, of course, there's lots of directions we could go with us. Simply what I would ask you to do is note the response that Scripture calls for at the very end of this section. So I would ask if you would all, from the youngest to the oldest in here, look to the end of chapter 4. What is the response? Chapter 4, verse 24. Now that the astute amongst us will notice that the author changes person at the end. Did you notice? He's talking about they. He's talking about what God has done and what the people do. And then he turns to speak to whom? To you. Suddenly he speaks to the covenant community. And what is the response that is called for here? Do you see it? These events happen so that you might always Fear the Lord so that you might live in, in covenant loyalty to God. And is that not absolutely critical for us at St. Peter's this morning? I ask you, Christian friend, are you straying from God at this point in your life? Are you wandering away from God? Christian friend, are you ignoring your God? But an absence of prayer and a lack of, uh, of understanding and reading of his word, then this morning be reminded of what God has done for you. Look at this portion of scripture. See what you are pointed to. God has done everything necessary to bring you into salvation. God has displayed his power all for you. Be reminded that you are simply a bystander in this glorious salvation that you have received. And come back to God. Come back to him and live in a healthy fear of the Lord Most High. So we see the entrance to the promised land is by the almighty power of our God. Okay, but there is uh, something, something else in these chapters. Because one other striking feature uh, of this portion of Scripture that Hugh has read for us this morning, is the abundance of reasons 
that we are given for this miracle. It is unusual. It is startling to see that. Do you follow? So we are in this portion of Scripture. We are not just told what God does and the detail of what God does, but Scripture goes to an incredible length to actually lay before us literally a plethora of purposes and reasons why God has acted like this. Now, causes me a problem, (laughs) because how are we going to deal with all of this? Too many reasons here for us to go into these one by one. So what I want to do uh, just now is for you and I just to hover over for a moment, hover over the primary reason that God gives for bringing his people into the promised land by way of this miracle. So there's one reason that stands above the rest, and I want us to think about it. So this is the the second heading this morning. The entrance to the promised land is to honor God's chosen servant. I'll say that again. Make sure you get it. Entrance to the promised land is to honor God's chosen servant. Can I give you two places uh, to look so I can prove that to you. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 7, maybe the boys and girls can look that up as well. Chapter 3, verse 7. So this is before the miracle. And what do we read? The Lord says to Joshua, today I will what? begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. So that's before, everyone got it? That's before the miracle. Now look at chapter 4, verse 14, friends. See if you can get that. Chapter 4, verse 14. This is now after the miracle. And what does God say? God says, that day the Lord exalted Joshua. Does everyone follow? So we have got bookends around this, or brackets, don't we, around this miracle? Do you see it? Everything is pointing to us to the main reason God brings people in like this. Why? To lift up Joshua, the name of Joshua, before the people. Why does it happen? It happens to exalt Joshua. Now, I think, if we're quick with this, I think there's a couple of things we can deal with really, really, really quickly. Like, I think we can deal with very quickly what God does to lift up Joshua. Because there's a really obvious thing for a minister to say uh, from Joshua 3 and 4. You know what I'm going to say, do you? What does God do? God parallels the Exodus. That's the obvious thing to say, isn't it? Isn't it? Even the young ones can get that. Not only do we see a water-based crossing like the Red Sea, But also, when you dig into it, a lot of the terminology here is very similar to the Exodus. God piling up the water, God heaping up the water. Do we see the message here? God is not just lifting up Joshua, he's lifting him up to be revered like Moses. So we can deal with that. The other thing we can deal with really quickly is why God exalts Joshua. If I turn that to you, friend, would you be able to answer that? Why does God go to such lengths to exalt Joshua? I'm sure you see it. These people needed, they needed to be assured. They're about to go into battle. They've heard on the grapevine that the people there about to fight are ferocious and intimidating. You understand it, do you? Like these people, they need to know not just that they have a leader, they desperately, desperately need to know that God is with this man. They need to know that God is going to use this man that they follow. Okay, at this point, let me read a sentence to you, 
would ask you to, to, to listen closely. I'll paraphrase what one writer says about these verses. He says this, the best way to understand the extent to which God honors Joshua, the best way to understand the extent of the honoring of Joshua is for the reader, for us to imagine that we were present at the Jordan. Best way to understand the exaltation of Joshua is to imagine that we were there. You can do that. We can imagine that we're on the shores of the Jordan for a moment, because what did I just say? I just said to you that, that God does everything here. Who's the main player? It's God, isn't he? He does everything. But if you imagine yourself present at the Jordan, how does that divine power, how is it mediated to you? How do you experience that divine power? Did everyone notice? It all comes through Joshua. Did you notice it? I mean, yes, the priests are to carry the ark. Why? Because Joshua's told them to do it. What, what, what about the people? Why are they to stand back? How do they know? Joshua's told them to do it. There's this miraculous and amazing prophetic speech about what God is about to do. Who gives the speech? <laughs> Who gives the, the speech? Joshua gives the speech. Everything here, everything that God does, he works. Why? To lift up this man. To show that this man is deserving of honor and attention here. Now, as we apply that, I think everyone in the room and everyone at home knows exactly where we go by implication or application. We all know where I'm going, but is it not beautiful nonetheless? Surely we see that there is a similar exaltation in our own transfer to God's promised land. There is a similar exaltation that has happened in our own salvation. And, and you see it, you know it. But don't you recognize some of the, the, the beautiful parallels that are here? <laughs> Is it not the case that if you listen really carefully, listen, listen really carefully, you can almost hear these people in Joshua 3, you can almost hear them say the same thing of Joshua that the disciples would go on to say of your Lord. Can you, you listen, you imagine yourself there, and they say, you know, who is this? That even the waves, I mean, who is this? Even the winds and the, and the waves have obeyed him. And you know what I love the best about this portion of scripture is the geography. Because you notice in chapter four, where we are, we're in Gilgal, where most commentators agree that's the location of John the Baptist's later ministry. Do, do you see what's happening? that here God is stooping to confirm his chosen leader at exactly the same place where in Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, the same thing happens. Don't we see? I mean, God stoops and he confirms what? He's the one. He's the one who deserves your attention. This is my beloved son, follow him. Do, do you see? Do you see it? That just as God brings the people into the promised land in the way he does to exalt Joshua, so the same is true for you and me in our salvation. God has acted in your salvation in the way he has. Why? So that Christ receives all the honor, so that Christ receives all the glory, so that Christ receives all the praise and all the worship. 
And because of that, surely you and I, we ought to pay attention here to the response of the people to this exalted man. Look at this. In chapter 4, there's a prominent theme. It's repeated a few times to you. You see it in verse 8. You see it in verse 10. We see the response of the people to this newly exalted man before them. What do they do? They obey him in everything. Verse 8, the, the people obey him. Verse 10, the priests obey him. And ought we ought you not to do the same. I repeat to you, are you wandering? Are you as a Christian living in disobedience, straying from God? See who Scripture is pointing you to, the exalted one, the risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Come to him, come back to him and follow him. And then we end with the third thing, the entrance to the promised land is something for constant remembrance. Can I repeat it so we get it? Entrance to the promised land. The kids will have to get it because I will ask them later what the third point was. Entrance to the promised land is for constant remembrance. Now, as we move towards the conclusion here, can I ask you as a congregation, do you find it slightly strange Uh, to see what the first act was of the people as they enter into Canaan. Do you find it quite unusual to see the first thing that they they do to see what it was? This is what I would have expected to read. I would have expected Hugh to come up here to read Joshua 3 and 4, and I would have expected this, that God does this miracle. They come into the promised land and they build an altar to worship God. Don't you expect that? Maybe it's just the Highlander in me, because here's the other thing that I would maybe have expected. Uh, We read it together. They come into the land. God does this miracle, and they unsheathe (laughs) their swords, and they charge off towards Jericho uh, to, to strike a victory. That's what I'm expecting, and that was not their first act. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Look what they do. So some men are to take stones from exactly where the priests with the ark were standing on the riverbed. Take the stones from there, carry them to where you're camping, and set up a memorial site, a memorial. Build a memorial for this event. Now, before we ask, like, why would you do that? We've got to be clear about exactly what it is that they want remembered or commemorated, because it's not just the kids who are like Scooby-Doo. I'm like Scooby-Doo. Perhaps you're like Scooby-Doo, especially if there's a long reading of Scripture. Sometimes we wander. So I want to know from you, friends, did you pick up on the theme, chapter 4? Did you pick up on the theme that it is all of Israel that's been brought safely across? Did you pick up on that? What a beautiful theme, isn't it? Did you notice verse 2? Yes, there's 12 men who have to take the stones from the river, but not just any 12 men, one from each tribe has to take a stone. Do you see? All of Israel's been brought across. What about a couple of weeks ago, if you were here? Were you here a couple of weeks ago? Do you remember the two and a half tribes, the Gadites? Do you remember the Gadites? And we're all wondering, are they going to be involved in this conquest? Guess who heads up the people crossing? It's them in verse 12. Do you see it again? All Israel is involved 
And if you're not convinced, chapter 4, verse 1 says, the whole nation, all of them. Isn't it wonderful? Just as I can stand here before you and I can say in Christ Jesus, the same is true of you. None of us in Christ will be lost. There will be no collateral damage. Each one of us will be brought safely home. But why on earth do they build a memorial? (laughs) You're not asking that? I mean, if you were there, I mean, it's not likely. You're not likely to forget this great miracle, are you? You're not likely to, oh, yes, I'd forgotten that God parted the waters and brought us across. Well, the answer is given in verse 6 of chapter 4. Why build this memorial? You see it, do you? To teach the children. This memorial is built as a visual aid for the next generation and I think just as we close, we ought to linger there. Because you, you, you can see the parallel with the Lord's Supper, right? Surely, all of us. You know, just as these people were to commemorate this crossing, enabled by the ark, with its mercy seat sprinkled with blood, what are we to do as a church? Consistently remember it is the Lord's death that is the means of our crossing. The Lord's death, the means that brought us into Canaan. And we need to teach the kids, don't we? We need to answer the questions about the bread and the wine, but ought we not to do more? Because surely you're with me that it's a great joy to be part of a church where there's so many kids and children, right? Isn't it great? Isn't it lovely to see so many go out of Sunday school, so many young lives? I ask you though, do you pray for them every day by name? And then wait. Do we teach them? I mean, grannies and grandas and mums and dads, have you set up a memorial stone? Have you set up the memorial stone of family worship in your household that you might point them to what has been done for you, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one to take us safely across, to traverse and enter Canaan? Um, and I just I want to close where this portion of Scripture closes. Let me finish. Because what, what would he say? We, we talked about the timing. Do you remember the priest's wet sandals? Do you remember that? That's right. As soon as the priests hit the Jordan, the water stopped. Well, please look at verse 11. It's the last thing. Please look at verse 11. We are told this. As Christ has done for us, The ark stayed in the place of danger until everyone had crossed. And then what what happens at verse 11? Look at this. As soon as the priest's feet were out of the water, the Jordan comes crashing back down, doesn't it? As soon as those priests move to the other bank, that flood water comes rushing back down as though a huge gate was being shut, closed, pool closed, as though this door was being closed. So I end with a question for, for every one of you. In the last reckoning of things on the day of judgment, where will you be? Because you understand surely that one day the dry path across to God's promised land will, will not be there. You understand that? 
You understand one day that river, that flood water of judgment, that flood water of division, one day that will flow. Where will you be on that day? On that day will you be amongst the people of Israel? The people of God? A way to enjoy fully God's new heavens and new earth, his promised land, a way to that land flowing with milk and honey, will you be amongst the people rejoicing as you go forth? Or will you be on the other bank watching on? Will you be on the other bank in despair and in condemnation? Friends, which will it be today in the gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ He offers you safe passage today. Will you not look to him in repentance of your sin? Look to him in faith and come across. And come across in Christ and come across to God. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we we worship you for for this account of your power and your might. You are a God of uh, miracles, but a God of grace. We thank you for the reminder here, Lord God, that it is you who has done everything to bring us safely uh, to your promised land of salvation. We thank you that you have done this to honor your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord God, we ask that you would help us to instruct the next generation about your grace and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, how we pray that if anyone here is still on the other bank, how we ask, Lord God, that today that you would bring them to Christ, that Christ may take them across. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.